Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. You are now listening to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. It's time to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. My word shall not return unto me void but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. It is interesting that the Lord can view prophecy as a burden. It can be a burden to the people who are forced to endure it due to their own personal bad choices or the choices of others. Sin always affects more than just the sinner. It certainly affects the Lord, since His word must come to pass his word can also be a burden to him, particularly if he doesn't want to do it. The Lord is kind and meek and takes no pleasure in prophecies of death, destruction, and terror. Zechariah 9 contains the burden of the word regarding the continued governance of Israel at the hand of foreign nations. By the time of this writing, the Jews had endured Nebuchadnezzar and his successors in Babylon as well as Cyrus and Darius of Medo-Persia. Soon, Alexander the Great would come on the world scene. He would overthrow the Persian Empire and crush the cities of Hadrach, Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Zidon, Escalon, Gaza, and Ekron. He humbled Ashad and the prideful Philistines. But interestingly enough, though Alexander would swear in wrath to raise Jerusalem, Instead, he would merely camp about her and then leave her in peace. 
Here's the way the Lord foretold these events to his prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9.1 The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it, and fear. Gaza also shall see it, and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation shall be ashamed, and the king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth, and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. All of this came to pass when Alexander of Macedon ruled the world years later. Since it is the least widely known part of Alexander's astounding life, we will take a short tangent and explore Alexander the Great. We did this once before in Daniel, and so some of you will have already heard it. What did Alexander want? Historians for centuries have tried to figure out just what made Alexander the Great tick. They debate. Was it his boyish desire to prove himself to his overbearing father? Was it his mother's excessive coddling? We know that he was a pawn in his parents' feisty marriage. We do know he was both a mama's boy and a man's man. Was it his deep patriotism for Greek life and Macedonia in particular? Was it a sense of cultural superiority infused by his teacher, Aristotle? The answer to all of this is yes, which only raises more questions. Alexander is an enigma. We all are to some extent. Human beings are always more simple and more complicated than anything we can dissect in a book or on a Freudian couch. Why did Alexander have an all-consuming passion to conquer the known world by destroying the greatest empire of his day. The spark that set him in motion can only be understood through the prism of Judaism, as bold as that sounds. Due in large part to the pathological conspiracy to ignore all things Jewish, the world has dismissed an extremely important piece of the Alexander puzzle. The ignored story goes like this. Alexander's father had been planning a campaign against Assyria when he was assassinated at a wedding feast, most likely at the command of Alexander's mother. Alexander took the throne. He rallied his men and most of Greece and began his famous campaign to conquer the world. Alexander's attacks were daring, brilliant, and risky. He would frequently lead at the head of his army, rushing into battle with no thought for his own safety. 
the odds are that he should have been killed many times. But Alexander knew that God was on his side. One of his most amazing feats was the conquering of the island city of Tyre, called Tyrus, by Zechariah. Tyre sat on the coast of Lebanon, near Zidon, about a mile offshore. It was believed to be unconquerable, as she did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. There was a temple on the island dedicated to Hercules, of whom Alexander claimed descent. Alexander had the queer obsession to worship and seek out the gods of every people he conquered. When the lords of Tyre refused to let him enter the city and worship at the temple, Alexander was furious. Realizing there was no way to take Tyre by sea, Alexander ordered his men to build a causeway of dirt out into the ocean. It seemed absolutely insane. But shovelful by shovelful, they threw dirt into the sea. Until in seven months' time, they had built a land bridge to Tyre. God did cast her out, and he did smite her power in the sea. Alexander's land bridge is still there. And despite the centuries, Tyre is still connected to the land to this very day. As the lords of Tyre saw Alexander's army getting closer, they sued for peace, but it was too late. Alexander would ask an Easterner only once to obey him, and if they refused, there was no mercy. It was during the campaign against Tyre that Alexander wrote a letter to Jadua, the Jewish high priest at Jerusalem, asking for supplies for his army, as well as any tribute meant for his enemy, the Persian emperor Darius. The high priest replied that he had sworn an oath to Darius never to bear arms against him, and that he could not violate his sacred oath. Alexander was furious again. He decided that after he had crushed Tyre, his next stop would be Jerusalem, where he would make them pay with their lives. Alexander did destroy Tyre, devoured her with fire, killing most of the men, and selling the women and children into slavery. Then he turned his anger towards Jerusalem, conquering Gaza along the way just because he could. When word came to Jerusalem that Alexander was coming, the Jews were seized with terror. They had been through so much since Nebuchadnezzar conquered them. Jadua and the people were in agony, not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians. Being a good high priest, Jadua remembered the God of his fathers. He gathered the city together and in deep repentance and humility offered sacrifice. He pled with the Lord to protect the people and to deliver them from the perils that were coming. The Lord answered him in a dream. He was told to take courage and adorn the city as if she were a bride, waiting to receive her husband. They were to open the gates and dress in their white garments of worship and thanksgiving. He and all the priests were to dress in their temple robes and meet Alexander at the gates of Jerusalem. They were not to act afraid, nor be afraid. Jadua awoke rejoicing and quickly made the preparations. Here is where the story gets interesting. This is the part that I believe is the key to understanding the mind and motivations of Alexander the Great. The part that secular historians and secular Hollywood always leave out. At Alexander's approach, Jadua and the priests went out to greet him. The Phoenicians and the Babylonians who accompanied Alexander were excited, 
They hated the Jews, and Alexander had promised them that they could rape, plunder, and torture anyone until they were satisfied, or until the Jewish nation was no more. But instead, a very strange thing happened. Alexander changed his mind. When the young conqueror saw the open city, and the priesthood all arrayed in white, with Jadua clothed in fine purple and scarlet, with the Levitical turban upon his head, bearing the gold name of God on his brow, he dropped from his horse to the ground. Alone, with great reverence, he approached Jadua, saluting him. The priests, with one voice, saluted him back and encircled him like a king. The jaws of Alexander's commanders and the Jew-haters hit the ground. Then they were very upset. They knew Alexander could be unpredictable, but this was too much. Carefully they sent General Parmenio to ask him why he was saluting Jews worshipfully, as though they were divine, when it was obvious to everyone else they were only surrendering. Alexander turned and said, I am not worshipping Jews, nor their high priest, but that God who honored this man with his holy priesthood. Then he told his men the following. When I was still in Macedonia, trying to consider how to conquer Asia, this man's God told me to make no delay, but to boldly go, and that he would conduct my army and give the empire of Persia into my hands. This great God was dressed just as this high priest is now. I have searched the priesthood of men, and no other has been arrayed the same as the God in heaven. I now know that I will indeed conquer Darius and destroy the Persian Empire. Everything else I plan to do will happen. He then offered Jadua his right hand, and he and all the priests paraded into Jerusalem. Their first stop was the rebuilt temple where together they offered sacrifice to Jehovah. Afterwards, they brought out the book of Daniel and showed Alexander the passage where it is said that the he-goat of Greece would destroy the ram of Persia. Needless to say, Alexander was in ecstasy. He knew that this greatest of the Greeks, the he-goat therein, was he, and divinely appointed. He must have been touched by the symbol God chose for him. The ancient totem animal of the Greeks was the he-goat. Alexander called the people of Jerusalem together and asked them to make requests of him. The priests asked on behalf of the people that they might be allowed to enjoy the laws of their forefathers, including celebrating a seventh year with no tribute to the king. Alexander agreed. They had learned that lesson from the exile, at least. Then they asked if all Jews in Alexander's kingdom, including the lands he would yet conquer, could enjoy the same privilege. Alexander granted that as well. He then told the people that any who wished to join his army could and would be allowed to keep the law of the Torah within his ranks. It is said that many Jewish men enlisted. Alexander was treated likewise in every Jewish town he visited. Now, the real husband of Israel was, of course, Jesus Christ, who would make a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. He and Alexander were the same age. The following verses seem to be suggesting that Alexander's entry would be a sign and a type of a future wedding, that of Zion's real king. Note the way in which the Lord commanded Jerusalem to greet Alexander and the prophecy that follows. 
Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Juxtaposed right after the prophecy of Alexander, this becomes fascinating. Of course, all Christians and Jews know that Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on just such a mount and offered himself as bridegroom and king of Israel. This hugely important event is recounted in all four Gospels. It occurred on the precise day foretold by Daniel the prophet, as we've already explored together in season one. The Jews have long understood that both events, Daniel's and Zechariah's, are connected, and that they are about the Messiah, the real teacher of righteousness. The Talmud makes special mention that there is an important difference between the account given in Zechariah about the coming of the Messiah and the one given in Daniel 7.13. In Daniel it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Well, Zechariah says that the Messiah would appear as a lowly, humble person riding a donkey. Joseph Smith explained that both were precisely true. The Lord's triumphant entry fulfilled Zechariah. Well, Daniel 7.13 is yet to happen at Adam on Diamond. Isn't it great to have our own teacher of righteousness? Jewish scholars trying to make sense of these two opposite views have explained them like this. If Israel is worthy, the Messiah will come on the clouds of heaven. But if Israel is unworthy, the Messiah will come as a humble person to us. Christians know that the Messiah came humbly riding the royal mount of King David. When our Lord was rejected by Jewry, where Alexander was not, his deep sorrow over the rejection led directly to his crucifixion, the birth of the Christian church, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Judaism ceased to have meaning that day, as another would soon come in his own name. And instead of Jehovah made flesh, another they would receive. It was the saddest day of the Lord's life. These verses speak of what could have been. They raise the question, what if Jerusalem had accepted her husband and king? All men are free agents. So it is contrary to the laws of heaven to say Jewry was incapable of making a different choice. These next verses offer them a glimpse of what might have been. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Be merry, my bride. Shout and sing with joy. Your beloved is coming to you at last. He is pure and good and has the power to save you. See, he comes riding on David's royal mount, a fresh donkey's colt. Zechariah would next take us into the birthright of Israel, which had been given to the tribe of Joseph, and more specifically, the tribe of Ephraim. This should strike all as strange, because Ephraim as a tribe had been lost with the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, 
and from the river even to the ends of the earth. I will remove the warlike spirit of Ephraim. I will heal the warrior heart of Judah. Israel will again be one family, beloved brothers. I will speak to the unbelievers and make peace with them from sea to sea. All will know and love your king. Chariots and horses as weapons were forbidden in Israel. The fact that Ephraim would have them is a clue that Ephraim would have lost his Jewishness, so to speak, in the future. King Messiah would correct all of this and heal the hostility between prideful Ephraim and arrogant Judah. He would bring peace to even the unbeliever and rule from the river to the ends of the earth. What river is the river? As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Because of our covenant together made in blood, I will redeem your dead loved ones as well. Nothing will be lost to you, not even the loss of the grave. For those who have feasted with us on Jonah, the connection here between the sea and the prisoners of the pit should be obvious. You will remember that John the Beloved said that God would kill the great serpent Satan and drain the sea. A sea with no water is just a pit for prisoners to be set free. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Come and rejoice in the strength of your faith, O departed prisoners of death. Today you are restored again, bone for bone, back to the world of the living. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. Judah will be as a bow, and the multitude of Ephraim as my arrows. With them I will end the power of the sons of Javan, who call themselves the sons of Hillel. This is going to take a little bit to explain, but I will try and do it succinctly, saving the more lengthy permutations of this for another feast. In brief, Satan sees himself as the god of this world. He is the architect of man's fall in the Garden of Eden. After the fall, he was also the architect of the counter-religion, which swept the nations of the earth by the close of each dispensation. After the flood, he successfully took over the leadership of the nations. He built many of the incredible societies we revere in history. One of the most admired today is the Paragon of the West, the mighty civilization known as Classical Greece. In the Hebrew tongue, Greece is Javan. However, and I know this will not sit well with many, the Greeks of old called themselves Hellenists. Hillel is the celestial name of Lucifer. Lucifer is Latin for light-bearer. Hillel means God's light-bearer. When Hillel fell from heaven, he lost his El, a suffix borne by the sons of God to honor our Heavenly Father. Thus he became just Hell. On earth he became better known as Satan, which means enemy, a title he does not like as well as Lucifer. In short, verse 13 is saying that God will use the power of his priesthood and covenant born by the righteous redemption of Judah and Ephraim, to slay the sons of hell. Every time we enter Mount Zion, the temple of the Lord, and redeem our dead, the sons of hell tremble. They have no power but that which is gained as prison wardens. When the prison is empty, they will greatly mourn and be afraid. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, 
and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord, not your Zeus, will throw his bolts of lightning. He will blow the shofar of Israel, not the horn of the he-goat of Greece. The Lord of Israel will lead his warriors. They shall be like a whirlwind from the south. Father Noah told Daniel that Rome, the current power at the time of the Lord's rejection by Jerusalem, was the child of Greece. It is true that when Rome finally rose in power, they so admired the Greeks in all things that they usurped everything Greek they could, from their religion to their hero's armor. Were the Lord to have called back Ephraim in his day, their combined attack on Rome and Greece would have come from the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour, and subdue with slingstones, and they shall drink, and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls, and as the corners of the altar. The Lord will be his people's defense, and they will defeat all their enemies with great flying stones. They will shout their battle cries like merry men drunk on wine. They will be covered in the blood of righteous revenge and redemption, like the bulls that line the altar of my temple. Here Israel would have been invited to aid the Lord in his revenge upon the nations, when he will yet come with his robes, blood-red, from the death of his enemies. Had Israel accepted his marriage proposal and taken his marriage cup of wine, they would have, as one flesh, destroyed their enemies together. This would have been done in righteousness, like a sacrifice at the altar brings freedom for the people. A very fine wedding gift for a nation so oppressed, since Cain slew Abel to get gain. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon his land. The great God will save his people, and they will be more precious to him than the jewels of his majestic crown. He will exalt them on high, like a banner that waves above his holy palace. The Lord has said that children are the heritage of God. Family and life is the greatest gift of God. Here, the Lord would have held up his people as his most precious possession in all his creations. For the God of the universe, possessor of everything, to claim his people as his most cherished gift is a joy beyond measure. Do you see how he sees you, his children, when you come to him? For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty! Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. We shall shout our God's greatness. We will proclaim the beauty of our husband. Our youthful sons will thrive on abundant grains and our lovely daughters will sip wine and be happy. This seems to be the version of what could have been if Judah had accepted Jesus that day like they accepted Alexander. Of course they did not. But I can see a man with horn-rimmed glasses and a clenched jaw at the back of the room, so we better let him speak. Uh, <clears throat> but if that had happened, wouldn't that have completely destroyed the plans of God? Well, I don't know, I reply. It didn't happen, so what's your point? His eyes then narrow. The Lord had to be crucified and rejected by the Jews, or there would have been no atonement. All I can reply is, aren't you making a myriad of assumptions here? Why do you assume that still would not have happened? Let's just take a wild and crazy and useless speculation, since none of this did happen. What if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah that day? I suspect that on a certain day appointed, he would have explained to them that as the Lamb of God, 
he would need to be taken to the temple and sacrificed in honor for the sins of the world, likely by John the Baptist, the high priest. I then suspect that he would have been resurrected before their eyes, and proclaimed the good news of his kindred in a royal show of glory. It would have been glorious and a dignified event. The fact that Jesus was rejected totally meant that upon his shoulders fell his entire assignment. This leaves me speechless before him. Consider the truth here. Satan and mankind's collective sin and stupidity so tried to frustrate our only hope for salvation that Jesus the Christ had to set and execute his entire atonement by himself. Anyone less than him, which is all of us, would have said, fine, you don't want it? Forget it. I'm going home to my father. We do know from the Lord's own lips that the burden was so great upon his shoulders that he did ask the question, Father, is there any other way? Any other way at all? When the Father said, No, there is no other way, Jesus humbled himself totally and fulfilled our salvation alone. Were it not for my own testimony of this truth, I would scarcely believe it at all. What I can say is that when he comes a second time, I, for one, am going out to welcome him and thank him. There is one last noodle-scratcher that is also worthless, since it did not happen. We have in our own dispensation promises made by the Lord about our early saints building the city of Zion. Had our ancestors been able to do so, what would have become of the prophecies about Israel in the mountains and the desert blossoming as a rose? The fact is that we, like the Jews of old, have our free agency. I, for one, believe that the Lord would have allowed us to build Zion were we able, and that the entire event would have been one of less suffering and trial. Since we were not able to do it, we will yet rejoice that He, our God, is able and mighty and worthy to save us, despite us. Rejoice, O Zion, again. We have been sealed to the best the Father of us all has to give, a royal and mighty husband who has chosen us despite us. Let us be worthy to greet him when he finally comes again. This has been a particularly interesting episode on our podcast. Perhaps the lesson is we need to be grateful for the blessings that heaven has sent our way and continue to wait patiently until that perfect day when all will be given to us freely. For those of our listeners just joining us, you should know that our series is designed to build upon itself. And so if you are feeling a little lost, we would encourage you to start with Season 1, Episode 1, and enjoy your feast up through the series. So until next time, stay hungry and continue to enjoy your times at the table of the Lord. Thank you.